0: Thank you, Randall. At this national conference that we had this week in Orlando, in the last message that I gave, I focused attention on the marriage feast of the Lamb and went back to the parables of Jesus in the gospel where the parable of the great King who appointed a marriage feast for His Son and sent out invitations to the people, but the people didn't respond. They were too busy. They had this to do and that to do, and so they said, I cannot come. So God, or the King, expressed His wrath, drew the invitation from those, and went out to the highways and byways and dragged in people like us and brought them to the feast. Now, what's the point of that? Well, you've just been invited to a feast on (laughs) Friday night. And I think back to our youth and We had an opportunity as kids. I wasn't a Christian at all, but I did sing in the choir, and we had a choir trip like that, and I carried the delightful memory of that for the rest of my days. And what this opportunity means for our young people to go on this uh, concert tour is just extraordinary. So I really do urge as many of you as possible to come to the feast on Friday night. Don't say I cannot come find a way to come, but that's all right. If you can't come, just send a check. (laughs) Let's make sure we get behind the kids so that they can have this trip. Last Sunday night, I bit off more than I could chew. I read the text and said I didn't know whether I would have the time to cover it. I didn't. So I'm gonna back up a little bit tonight in chapter five and pick it up at uh, verse we'll pick it up at verse 8 and then read all the way through verse 17 and let me just say now prophetically there is no way under heaven that I'm going to be able to cover all of that this evening so we'll just uh, chew on as much of it as we can so let me ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the word of god Romans 5 beginning at verse 8. "'But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son,' Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus Death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Thinking further on my task for the night… I know I'm not going to get any further than that. So why don't I just cease and desist at that point rather than create an unrealizable expectation that I would get through the rest of what I had previously announced. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, our Father, we look to Thee as those who once were helpless and hopeless, being under the burden of original sin, by which we were born in that sin, conceived in that sin, enslaved by that sin, and under the power of that sin, by nature being children of wrath, by nature being at enmity with thee. But we rejoice in our justification and the fruits that have accrued from it, and the joy that we experience in the reconciliation provided by us, or for us, by Christ. For we ask these things in His name. Amen. Last week we made it through verse 9, where we talked about the justification that we enjoyed while we were yet sinners, and we talked about how God had purposed this redemption for His people from the foundation of the world. And so this evening we're going to pick it up at verse 10, where we read, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now, we notice here that we have a comparison that is not one of equality. He doesn't say on the one hand it was like this, and on the other hand it was like that. He says on the one hand we have been reconciled through the death of Christ much more than have we been reconciled through His life. And so the theme of this verse has to do with reconciliation. And as I mentioned to you earlier in our study of Romans, the one absolute essential precondition, necessary condition for reconciliation between parties ever to take place is estrangement. Because without estrangement, there is no need of reconciliation. And yet this is one of the central motifs of the entire New Testament, that in Christ we have been reconciled to God. Again, this week at the conference, Sinclair Ferguson talked about human beings' natural enmity towards God and how there's almost a universal repudiation of that enmity. I mentioned to him in private, I said, you know, I can't think of anything that provokes more anger from unbelievers than when we say to them that they hate God. They deny it emphatically. I don't hate God. I may be indifferent towards God, but if you're indifferent to the Lord God Almighty who has created you and is the author of every blessing you've ever received, what is that except hatred? But we don't sense, we don't feel the weight of that burden of our natural hostility towards God, and that the New Testament speaks about reconciliation because reconciliation to God is so greatly and earnestly needed because we are estranged from Him. But, beloved, the thing that's even more difficult to get across as we've labored already in this study of Romans is the fact that in that estrangement, Not only are we at enmity with God, but God is at enmity with us. God is the natural enemy of corrupt sinners. Yes, indeed, as we've explored in the past, there is a love of benevolence and beneficence that He displays to creatures indiscriminately, but yet yet at the same time the Scriptures replete with those descriptive terms that tells us how God's face is set steadfastly against the wicked. He is too holy as to even look at us. So great is that gulf of estrangement between God and us. But there is a big difference of the driving force of the estranged parties. What drives our opposition towards God, which we have innately, is evil. Our estrangement is based in a wicked opposition against God. His estrangement from us is found in a holy opposition to sin. Let's understand that difference and not project onto God's character the same unjust grounds for enmity that we are guilty of ourselves. It is not right for the creature to be estranged from the Creator. But once the creature is sinful, it is right and proper for the Creator to be estranged from the sinner because God is holy and we are not. But what Paul is declaring here is the glorious work of redemption in which God takes the initiative for our reconciliation. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to, to pick up on here. In the cross, by the satisfaction of the atonement rendered by Christ to the Father, by His work of propitiation, Jesus reconciles the Father to the Father's people. On Good Friday, when Christ paid for my sin and for your sin, if indeed you are in Christ, when Christ made His atonement for His people, made the perfect sacrifice, satisfied God's wrath completely for those for whom Christ died, that was the end of the estrangement on God's part. So, we were reconciled in the sense that God, who was the injured party in all of this, was assuaged, was satisfied, and was no longer in opposition to His people. And yet, what Paul is saying is that God was reconciled toward us while we were still estranged toward Him. Think of that, that in this drama of reconciliation, Christ satisfies the righteousness and the holiness of His Father, satisfies God's opposition towards us while we are still opposed to Him. And the day that God was satisfied and was no longer in opposition to His people, that did not automatically change us. We did not experience that reconciliation until the removal of our opposition towards Him, till the removal of our hostility towards Him when we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, our hardened hearts were broken, and we were brought joyfully into a loving relationship with the Father through the Son. So it's one thing to experience the reconciliation through the death of Christ, but how much greater is that reconciliation that occurs through the life of Christ? Now we can look at that in two ways. I've said until you're tired of hearing it that our (coughs) justification is not secured simply by the death of Christ, but also uh, acutely through the life of Christ because of His life of perfect obedience to the law by which His righteousness was merited and earned and is now given to those of us who have no righteousness of our own, we can say it is the life of Christ even more than the death of Christ that is the ground of our justification. That may be true, it is true, but I'm not sure that's what Paul's talking about here. When he talks about how much more are we reconciled through the life of Christ, remember he's already introduced the idea that we are justified not only by the death of Christ, but that Christ was raised for our justification, that we are reconciled because we have a mediator not only who died for us, but who has been raised from the dead for us, who continues to make intercession. He is our peacemaker. He is our peace. And He lives forever continuing in that role, representing us before the Father. And as wonderful as that once for all death was on the cross, how much greater is that reconciliation that we realize and experience because He lives and ever intercedes for us. Now, there's one more point I want to cover here before we go into that next session where the comparison and contrast is made between the work of Christ as the new Adam and the work of the old Adam, and that is just a little bit more exploration of the meaning of this term reconciliation. Now, Some of you remember when we started this study of Romans, when we were back in Romans one. And we talked about the revelation of the wrath of God beginning in Romans 1, 18, because God has revealed Himself plainly to all people, and the universal response of fallen humanity to the brilliant, manifest revelation of God Himself in nature is to refuse to honor Him as God, nor were we grateful. And then later on in that indictment when Paul brings the whole world before God in that tribunal, He mentions that the substance of our universal guilt and corruption before God is this, our proclivity for idolatry, the sin of exchanging the truth of God for the lie, serving and worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. Now, you maybe remember that. You may remember also that when I talked about that, I made mention of the word that is used there by the Apostle Paul, the word metalasso, which indicates an exchange, a trade, a swap, where we trade the glory of the eternal, immortal, everlasting God, swap it for the glory of contemptible things, creeping things, bugs and snakes and, and idols of other sorts. And I said there was that metalasso, that exchange that took place. And that, that word has the prefix meta, which means with. You, you trade something in for something other, with. You carry it with and trade it for something else. Well, the same root word is the root for reconciliation. It's not lasso, but katalasso is the verb. And then the noun form is katalage. And that's the word that that Paul is using here when he says, We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son much more. Having been reconciled, again that form of uh, katalos, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received the kataloké. We have received the reconciliation." as if it were a concrete noun, that that reconciliation is a substantive reality. It is a gift that God has given to His people because of the death and resurrection of Christ. And so what is the result of that? Unspeakable joy. Do you understand, folks, that the Christian life is to be from beginning to end a life of joy, because we have much to be happy about. There is no room for the sourpuss in the kingdom of God. There is nothing dour about our redemption. If I am the most miserable of of people on this planet, suffer to the degree that nobody else has ever been called to suffer. If I were a modern-day Job Sitting on the dung heap, I would have no right to say anything different from what he said when he declared, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Because there is no affliction so dire, no sorrow so deep, no pain so intense that is worthy to be compared with the glory of that cotalogae, of that reconciliation that we have received in the beloved. And so, when we contemplate our state of affairs in this world, as long as we keep our eyes on this plane of this world and we see our bank accounts slipping away, we see our homes destroyed, we lose our jobs, our bodies are torn by disease, we have every reason to complain and to whine and to weep. But if we lift our eyes for one second, To the cross and to the resurrection, and see that the Lord God omnipotent, who's too holy to even look at us, now not only looks at us, but embraces us, adopts us as his children, because he has been reconciled to us. Paul says that's another benefit that flows from our justification. Not just these things, but we rejoice. In God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. You see, this is just an expansion of what he says at the very beginning of this chapter being justified. Therefore, we have peace with God and access into his presence. And we can now glory in tribulation because it works perseverance and perseverance character and character hope which is never ashamed. He's still talking about this same motif. All right, now, then he changes a little bit here in verse 12 where he introduces a most difficult concept. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is the type of one who was to come." Now, there is so much in that text that I just read to you that it keeps the theologians busy studying. And arguing ever and ever. Because this is one of the most important texts in the Bible to talk about the fall of the entire human race through Adam. And just let me briefly talk about the way in which the argument goes. One man brought sin, it was Adam. And with that sin, came death. And death came on the whole human race because all have sinned, but not after the similitude of Adam's sin. What's He getting at here when He says, everybody dies after Adam. Even babies are born and live a few hours, and they die And death is the penalty for sin. Without sin, there can be no death. And without the law, there can be no sin. So, Paul is saying, now remember, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death was in the world before God gave His law through Moses. Because since Adam's fall, all creatures have died because all sinned there. And they sinned before the law of Moses. But remember, Paul is saying here, there can be no sin, there can be no transgression unless there's law, because the definition of sin is a transgression of the law of God. There's no law, no foul. But if there's a law then the penalty is incurred when we break the law. And since the penalty for sin is death, and since death reigned from Adam to Moses, there's a sense in which everybody in the world broke the law somehow in Adam. That's the point here of Romans 5. Through one man, sin and death came into the whole world, that somehow we're related to Adam. This is the theological question and poser that students struggle with all the time. They say, now how can God blame me for sinning, hold me culpable for my transgressions when all I'm doing is what comes naturally? I was born in sin, in sin did my mother conceive me, and when I sin, I'm just acting according to the nature I was born with. How can God hold me responsible for acting out a nature He gave me before I was even born?" And so we ask, well, because you sinned in Adam. I sinned in Adam. I wasn't there. I wasn't in a twinkle in my father's eye at the time of the fall. How can God hold people responsible for what Adam did when they weren't even there in the garden? And So that's the poser, isn't it? And there are several answers to that theologically that have been given in the church through the ages. I'll just mention two or three this evening and go over them quickly. One of the common explanations for this is the doctrine that is called realism, and realism operates on the premise that the only way God justly and morally could condemn us for what Adam did was that if we were really there participating in the act. So if we were really there in terms of our pre-existent souls before we were actually born with bodies, nevertheless our souls existed back with Adam. And together with Adam, this was a, a, a joint effort so that when he sinned, we sinned because we really were there. And the favorite text that is used to defend this kind of realism is the text in Hebrews where the author of Hebrews is comparing and contrasting Jesus with the people of the past, with Moses, with angels and others along the way, and talks about the superiority of Christ's high priesthood because one of the complaints waged against the Christian confession of faith in Jesus in the first century was that the church confessed that Jesus was king. He was from the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of David, and He was the king that was long awaited. But not only was He king, but he was proclaimed as the great high priest who made a perfect sacrifice in our behalf once and for all. And the critics of Jesus say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He can't be our high priest because one of the necessary qualifications to be high priest is that he has to be from the tribe of Levi. It's to Aaron and to his family, to the Levites, that the priesthood was given And Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Fine, he can be king, but he can't be priest because only Levites can be priests. And the author of Hebrews responds to that charge and reminds his readers of an episode that is recorded in the book of Genesis where this mysterious figure named Melchizedek met Abraham and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and received a blessing from Melchizedek. And, of course, the author of Hebrews labors the point that the greater receives tithes from the lesser. That's why I count your offerings every Sunday morning. Disregard that. And the greater blesses the lesser. And so, the point that the author of Hebrews makes is that the priesthood exercised by Melchizedek is a higher order of priesthood than that found in Aaron and his descendants among the Levites. And so that even though Jesus was not a Levite, His priesthood was of a higher order of priesthood because, as the Scriptures say, going back to Psalm 110, that Christ is a priest after the order. Of Melchizedek. Well, what in the world does that have to do with how we're related to Adam in the fall? Well, here's the answer to that. Those who argue for realism, that say we were really there in pre existent souls in the garden, argue from this text in Hebrews that sets forth Christ as having a superior priesthood because in the argument he says Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, which shows that. Abraham is subordinate to Melchizedek. And Abraham's the father of Isaac, and the father is greater than the son. So if Isaac is Abraham's son, then Abraham is greater than Isaac, and if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and Abraham's greater than Isaac, Q E D, Abraham is greater than, excuse me, Melchizedek is greater than Isaac. But then the plot thickens. Isaac has a son whose name is Jacob. Isaac is greater than Jacob. Abraham is greater than Isaac. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Jacob. And then Jacob has all these sons among whom is Levi. Jacob's greater than Levi. Isaac's greater than Jacob and therefore greater than Levi. Abraham's greater than Jacob who's I mean, Abraham's greater than Isaac, who's greater than Jacob, who's greater than Levi. Now, we put it all together. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, who's greater than Isaac, who's greater than Jacob, who's greater than Levi. So, who's greater, Levi or Melchizedek? And it said, Abraham, or he says, the author of Hebrews says, that Levi, while he was still in the loins of Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek. And some people jump on that passage and say, ha! Ah, in that moment where Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, Levi was there. He was there in the loins of his father. He preexisted, his own birth, and he was there. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's really squeezing something out of the text that's not there. But anyway, that's the biblical basis for realism, the moral basis of it, I repeat, is because those who argue the case want to make sure that there's just grounds for God to visit the iniquity of Adam upon His progeny. More to the point in classic Reformed theology is what's called federalism as distinguished from realism. That says that Abraham, I'm sorry, that Adam was the federal head of the entire universe and of the entire human race. That the very name Adam, Adam, means mankind. And that what Adam did in the garden was not to act simply for himself, but for all of those whom he represented. And God appointed him in his probation there in Eden, to act for himself and all of his progeny. Now, again, people don't like that. They say, no damnation without representation. (laughs) But indeed, there was representation, which is the whole point here. But again, people squirm under this. They say, wait a minute. I didn't choose my representative. Well, let's look at that for a minute. In our legal system in America, if I hire somebody from Murder Incorporated or anybody to kill somebody, and I establish an alibi for myself at the time of the crime, I'm in another city, witnessed by all kinds of people, and my hired gunman kills my appointed Victim, can I be charged with first degree murder? Yes. Because my hired killer was carrying out my will and I am held accountable for the conspiracy to commit murder. And we see the clear justice of that. And in a similar fashion, so. Adam represents us in the garden. But they say, wait a minute, the whole analogy breaks through when you say that in the case of the conspiracy to commit murder, I personally, willfully hire somebody else to commit that heinous act of murder. I had nothing to do with selecting Adam as my representative, and I, in a jocular fashion, said. We complain, as Americans, no damnation without representation. We go back to the American Revolution and the tax on tea. And don't you wish the only tax we had to pay today was one on tea? But we go back to that environment where parliament changed the rules of the game and imposed taxes on the colonists without giving them representation in parliament and the colonists protested against it because it was a violation of British law. And the colonists were not just rebelling against the crown, they were calling the crown to obey the law. Can you imagine if King George listened to the protests of the colonists who were saying, no taxation without representation? He said, oh, you don't feel like you're adequately represented? I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a representative. It's going to be my brother, And he appoints his brother to represent us. How would we scream about that? We say, wait a minute, that's no good, because we would have no confidence that our interests would be represented by a representative that was chosen for us by somebody else. That's why we want to be able to elect our own representatives who govern over us. And so we go through the elective process in America. We listen to the candidates, we listen to their positions on the issues, we hear their campaign promises, and we are persuaded that candidate X will be the one who will most accurately represent us if elected. So we cast our vote for them, and then we're annoyed as can be when once they're elected they don't do anything that they said they were going to do. But there are representatives, we put them there. But do you see the complaint here. It's built into our American democratic heritage. How can it be just for God to appoint one man to represent all kinds of people? And the people don't even have a voice in that election. But there's a big difference between King George, your congressman, your senator, and God. When God selects your representative, He makes that selection infallibly. He makes that selection impeccably. Nowhere in time and space have you ever been more perfectly representative representative, than you were in the Garden of Eden by the representative that God selected to act in your And if that be true, we can never curse God and say, it's not fair because if I was there, I would have done something different. When we complain about being misrepresented by Adam, all we do is prove the perfection of that representation as we manifest our fallen nature, our Adamic nature when we complain against God for that, also for the Christian who doesn't like that and who objects to having a representative in the fall and makes that objection in principle saying, God is never… it is never appropriate for God to accept the representation of one person for another. If you want to hold to that principle consistently, then you must not only reject any identification between you and Adam, but you would have to re- re- reject equally any representation of you by Christ. The principle of representation, dear friends, is at the very heart and soul of our salvation. So be careful if you reject that principle or that idea in principle, because if you do, you've rejected your only hope of salvation. One last point about this is that there is perhaps a more deep combination of realism and federalism expressed in the uh, profound thinking of the Puritan divine Jonathan Edwards who manifested his identity theory, and you'd have to have some idea of platonic philosophy to really grab this, but the idea is that in simple terms that in the garden you were present not because your soul was there, but you were present in the mind of God. And what is present to the mind of God is present in reality not because your soul was there, not because your body was there, but because in the mind of God, you were there in Adam, perfectly present there. One last thing about it, I keep saying one last thing and give you another one. In Edward's great treatise on original sin, where he gave his uh, monumental study of the biblical texts for the fall and original sin. He also gave an argument from reason. He said, if the Bible never taught about a universal plunge into ruin of the human race at the beginning in Adam, if there was no such word of the fall in the Scripture, reason would require that we posit such an event? How else could we explain the universality of sin in the human race? Now, our culture is schizophrenic on this point because on the one hand, they don't want to acknowledge the reality of sin at all, only mistakes. And they want to say the origin of sin is environment, that the reason why people go bad and become corrupt is because they are reared in a culture or a society that's flawed, that's fallen, that's corrupt. Going back to the noble, savage idea of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, thought that man was born free and now is everywhere in chains. And the idea is we're all born neutral. We're all born innocent. But the reason why we all sin is because we're overwhelmed by the corrupting influences that are all around us. And so we all sooner or later, fall into sin. Edward said if that were the case, if we were all born innocent, neutral, you would expect at least 50 percent of the population to stay in that state of innocence. You have to look beyond the external influence of fallen society and cultural inducements to sin to explain the universality of it, and the question that goes begging is this if we were all born innocent, how did society ever get so corrupt in the first place? Because what the society is is people. But it's not like 5% of the people are evil and they seduce the other 95%. No. The reason why it's 100% is because we're born in that fallen state. In Adam comes sin, comes death, comes destruction into the whole world. And this is Paul's premise here when he then turns our attention away from Adam and the destruction that he brings to the world to the new Adam, the new representative who doesn't succumb to the enticements of the serpent, but who lives a life of perfect obedience, not just for his own sake, for the sake of his people, whom he came to represent, to reconcile, and to save. God willing, we'll explore more of this portion of the epistle in our next meeting. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the reconciliation that was effected in our behalf by Christ, who satisfied your justice, satisfied your righteousness. And not only that, stood in the gap for the radical effects of sin and death that has been the lot of the whole world, but who has accomplished and achieved everything that Adam failed to accomplish and failed to achieve. And so we look to Him, O God, the new Adam, who has represented us perfectly to You and given us the joy of our salvation. Amen.